Takeaway with Sunil Badami on ABC Local Radio. Hi, I'm Sunil Badami and welcome to your Sunday Takeaway on ABC Local Radio. Well, what is Sunday Takeaway? It's about the people and places around Australia, the characters, the oddballs, the mums and dads, the mavericks, the everyday people like you and me who make up our great, diverse, wonderful country and make it as great and diverse and wonderful as it is. It's their stories and it's yours too. Every week, we'll chat with some of the best ABC presenters and producers from around the nation who'll tell us about their local community and the local people who make it up. The legends, the myths, the in-jokes, the mysteries. And every week, we'll explore a different theme to bind all those different stories together, from shoes to faith, big things and, and ghosts, uh, cracker nights and, and race days, from the coast to the desert and the city to the bush. So if you love people and you love sharing a yarn, well, you're in the right place. So kick back, relax, and enjoy. This is your Sunday Takeaway. This is Sunday Takeaway with Sunil Vidali on ABC Local Radio. Can you guess what the theme for our first show is? I dropped a little hint. Well, if you guessed beginnings, you'd be right. Perhaps you dream of a new beginning, or you're making a new beginning now at uni or as a new parent or maybe you're starting a new job tomorrow or moving you've just moved into a new home over the weekend and the boxes are all piled up around you maybe you've just started dating and it feels like it could be serious or like me your baby who my baby you just heard before has just started school in which case you know all about the excitement and the terror of new beginnings as um I'm discovering right now. <laughs> Beginnings are full of hope, of promise, of new discoveries. But they can also be full of fear, doubt and resignation. So what's it like to pack your entire life up and begin a new one far away from everything you know and everyone you love? And what's it like to take on a demanding new pastime? Well, we've got new ABC Alice Springs drive host Tim Brunero to tell us what it's been like beginning a new life in the Alice. And we've got ABC Darwin Afternoons presenter Kato Tool giving us a peek into the world of dressage. Hi, Tim. Hi, Kate. Sunil. Hey, Sunil. How are you? Excellent. I'm really well. Well, look, Tim and Kate, I know you both talk to each other. It is a little bit of a territory special today. But, Tim, I have to ask you, as a new Territorian, why did you move to the Alice? (laughs) Well, I think a couple of years ago, I started to live by the adage, keep moving. I was kind of, I don't know, stuck in that, uh, the the inertia of just doing the same things I'd always done. And I just sort of thought, you know, I'm just going to keep moving. If if a job takes me to Adelaide, I'm going to pack up my little Yaris and drive across the Hay Plain. And do it, you know. Um, and I went to Adelaide and I came back to Sydney and I was working in the National Division of Local Radio and this job came up and I thought, I could do that. I could go to Alice. I don't have you know, kids or sick oldies or, you know, a big mortgage. 
partner or anything, so I can just do it. So I did. Tell me, um, Tim, uh, how how did locals react to the Yaris in the Alice? <laughs> well, look, you know what? It's funny. You, you expect to come here and it's all going to be utes and dead pigs and um, social problems, and some of that is here, I admit. I've had uh, more bacon probably in the last couple of weeks than I've ever had in my life. Um, but it's pretty much like any Aussie town, really. So what did you know about the Alice apart from, you know, utes and bacon busters? Well, I'd read Eleanor Hogan's book and I'd interviewed her on overnights. I'd been presenting some of those overnight shows, those national shows. So what was her book? It's called Simply Alice Springs and she paints a pretty rough picture, I've got to be honest with you. Um, Alice Springs is a town with a lot of social problems. Like, for example, I wouldn't go out at night. I wouldn't uh, walk around the streets at night. Um, I would drive to, if I went to, probably the only bar, there's only one bar in town that I would drink at. Um, and um, I, when I leave there, I go and get in my car or get in a taxi and go straight home. I don't wander around. Um, there are serious assaults, rapes, and all kinds of nastiness after dark on a weekly basis. And I've been quite shocked. I've been here a month and there's been fatal stabbings. Um, there's been um, horrific rapes. So it's not a place that you come to without realising that it can be dangerous, especially after dark. Um, and certainly I was prepared because I had read Eleanor Hogan's book. But, you know, the flip side is it, it's an amazingly warm place, metaphorically and literally. Um, and it's been wonderful to actually slip into a small community because people actually grab you. And it's such a transient town. People welcome you and there's, there's no messing around. You don't have to spend two or three weeks kind of, you know, shadow boxing with each other about this friendship that you've started, straight into it. Boom, let's be friends, let's do it, because I might be gone in two weeks. Kate, you're a roving ABC presenter as well, um, yeah. and you've been round the traps. How have you I found have, moving to different in, parts of the country? I've moved into state uh, for work seven times. So my first job I moved to South Australia for, and then Queensland, and then... New South Wales and then back up to Queensland and then back over to South Australia and then back over to New South Wales and then back up to the Territory. So it's, um, yeah, I the new beginning in a new state, in a new location, in a new town, I, um, I definitely empathise. I think, like, maybe it was easier when I was younger, I would just join a soccer club and then all of a sudden everything was, was sorted out. But I think in the Territory, as you say, Tim, people are a bit different and a bit more friendly and a bit more relaxed. I remember hearing um, somebody talking about that, talking about being in the um, in the airport in Melbourne and being in the line for the plane to Darwin and everybody <laughs> in the line for the plane to Darwin is like having a chat to the person in front of them, person behind them, <laughs> they haven't met them before. But it's just like that, whereas, you know, queues for other locations are a little bit more dead ahead, don't yeah. talk to anybody, eyes front. It's funny, it does seem to be a town full of overly familiar people. I um, sort of, on my first day, I literally arrived on the 18th of January, so literally in the middle of summer, and I remember lingering on the Qantas jet on the tarmac, knowing that I just wanted to be in that refrigerated air just for as long as I possibly could, because this was the last taste. I stepped out and it just hit me like a molten sledgehammer. Just the heat at 42 degrees is just it is just incredible. It's dry heat, but still it's just full on. But um, I went grocery shopping an hour or so later after I got myself a coffee, started yakking to the person behind me in the line. She said, you got somewhere to stay? I said, no. She said, come and have a look at my granny flat. So I'm you know, there with my grocery bags uh, in the back of her car. Two hours later... I'm eating lamb chops, drinking red wine and watching the Australian Open and I turned up the next day with 400 bucks to secure this little flat. So it's just, you know, I didn't have to go online or anything. There was no app. 
I just started yakking to someone. That's what it's, it's like. It's not online. It's in the line. In the <laughs> That's line. right. Yeah. I mean, Kate, do, you've, you've moved around so much. Does it, does it get any easier becoming a part of a community, a new community? Um, well, it did this time because this time I dragged my partner up and he's really social and lovely and um, my, like, as opposed to me because I'm awful. Um, and my uh, <laughs> colleagues at my former job just described him as a human heat lamp, you know, just somebody who's really warm and lovely and somebody in whose company you just want to be. Um, so that made it a little bit easier because I could just kind of go into his social slipstream a bit. Like there's a bit of social uh, capital from this job and everyone in the office is really lovely. So you, you've got your immediate connections there. And then I could just kind of cruise along um, and let um, my, my partner do sort of all of the, um, heavy, <laughs> the social heavy lifting. He'd be like, we're going to this party. I'm like, okay, all right. Do we have to? Okay. <laughs> now, I, this is Sunday Takeaway. I'm Sunil Badami and I'm going to get a word in edgeways between Kato Tool the ABC Afternoons presenter in the Territory in Darwin, and Tim Brunero, the ABC Drive presenter in Alice Springs. Now, Tim, Kate was really lucky to have her partner come with her, but you kind of started dating someone just as you took the job to Alice Springs, didn't you? Well, I'd just been presenting some overnight shifts, and you were always looking for cool new things to talk about. And I saw this bike dating event I thought, oh, yeah, that's interesting. So I interviewed the organiser, and basically it's 10 guys and 10 girls uh, who meet in Centennial Park at, uh, in Sydney at twilight and go for a bit of a ride and then go to a local pub and basically speed date. And I, I did an interview with this lady. I thought this would make a good kind of more in-depth radio thing. And I tried to kind of contrive a way to go but without actually admitting that I was single and going you know, as a participant, as someone who was going to go and record it and interview people. Finally, I realised that that was silly, and I thought I'd just go... And after it, I thought, I like the organiser better than, better than anyone else. I like, I like people who do stuff like that, not to make money or anything, just because it's a cool thing to do. Let's run a bike dating event. Um, and so I started seeing her for a little while. But um, I suppose you just have to, um, you know, as I said to you, you've got to keep moving. And this was a, this was a work thing. Um, and I'm still in contact with her. And I suppose you just got to have that, um, that mentality that if it's going to work, It'll work, and if I'm going to fly back to Sydney every you know month or so and 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 make it happen, and she's going to come up here, then then it'll work. If not, it won't. Oh, look, I hope it, it may well do. There's a lot of yeah, there's a lot of romance that can happen. I mean, this was under the guise of an ABC interview. There's a lot of romance. Is there anything more the romantic of... than an ABC interview? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, Kate. I mean, what tips do you have for Tim on managing uh, and, and and nurturing a long distance relationship? Oh, I've only had one really uh, significant long-distance relationship. It didn't work out very well, and I probably should have broken up with him about three years before I did. <laughs> so okay. um, I was quite good at um, stretching out the long distance. Cause, so my first job with the ABC was in South Australia. My partner's first job at that time, um, I was dating a guy at university, and his first job out of university was in the Caribbean. So that wow. was a significant difference. Yeah, so that was one. And then my second job was in Queensland and his second job was in London. Um, so anyway, I think I was quite good at just letting it drag out and exist. And I probably should have just given it the job. Okay. So that's not any advice for your particular biking situation <laughs> here, Tim. Well, there's a long ride back to Sydney. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, take the plane, I think. Mm. Tell me, what do you miss about Sydney, about home, Tim? 
Well, I thought I was going to miss coffee. And on my first day, in fact, before I even went to the grocery store um, and the bottle, I went to find a coffee. And by fluke, I happened upon this coffee shop where the staff were aloof and, well, aloof to the point of being rude. And they were kind of uniformly had excellent haircuts and loads of modern tats. And the coffee cost way too much. And so I thought, this is just like Sydney. I mean, this is not weird at all. Um, so there's not actually that much that I don't have here. I mean, what I miss, I suppose, is the beach. I mean, Sydney just has the best beaches in the world. And it's just such a beautiful, gorgeous city. Um, I miss Bondi. I miss the harbour beaches. I miss kayaking and beachy kind of watery things. And I miss friends. I miss being just running into people that I know or going to the local cafe and kind of just staying for hours, like a, you know, feeling like a bit of a relay runner, just changing batons every so often with different tables and different people. Um, so I suppose it's social stuff, really. Now, speaking of beaches, Kate, you had a very yes. interesting experience on the beach recently because, I mean, I, I suppose people in Western Australia would worry about sharks at the beach, but you've got crocodiles on the beach at Darwin. <laughs> Not very often, but they do occasionally pop up. And there was one time, and you know that they they don't kind of want to hang out there, right? They're, they're more likely to want to be in rivers. This is my understanding of it. But sometimes they'll need to move across beachy areas to find some new uh, territory for themselves. So occasionally they'll pop up. Occasionally there'll be one sunning itself on the banks near where I keep my horse at, at East Point. But it, it's not very often. But I, I, I just, there was one time when I was out riding on the beach and the croc, there'd been a crocodile maybe two weeks before just on the sand, uh, sunning itself, a couple of metres long sort of crocodile. And I thought, I knew logically at the time that the crocodile had most likely gone, there was most likely not another one, but you can't really see that much in the water. It's really turbid, the water at the beach here. It's, um, yeah, you, you can't, even if it's only a, a foot and a half deep, you can't see the sand at the bottom. In fact, you wouldn't be able to even see 10 centimetres in. But I, I took my horse, uh, Doc, for a ride on, on the beach and I was talking to this other girl and we sort of started going out into the water a little bit and the, the tides here, it's quite flat and the tides, um, it, it, it goes out quite a long way just in the shallows at the beach. And we were just mm. chatting away and I didn't realise quite how far we'd, um, we'd gone out until something freaked out the horse. It was not, and it wasn't just like a small concern he exploded underneath me. He bucked, and uh, I, I may have been able to stay on the first uh, buck, but as soon as he touched down again, he bucked again even bigger, and uh, I was off and um, fell into the water. <laughs> so the water was about mid-thigh height, right, at this point, and I looked back and went, oh, dear, um, it is a good couple of hundred metres. I'm going to have to trudge through this water. I can't see anything. The horse has taken off. My friend is more worried about my horse taking off into town than than me. So she's gone off to make sure that he doesn't, you know, run in front of a car or anything like that. So she'd gone to head him off at the beach. And there I was in full riding outfit and boots and everything, just sinking into the kind of muddy sand up to my ankles and trudging through, not being able to see anything, thinking... Please, please let the crocodile have gone. Please let the crocodile have gone. Please let the crocodile have gone. <laughs> now, Kate, I have to tell you, apart from being very frightened of going to the beach in Darwin because of the crocodiles, you haven't really sold me riding horses. 
Tell us a little bit about your horse obsession. I mean, how long have you wanted to have a horse? Oh, God, this was such a childhood um, dream of mine that I was never able to realise. Uh, I think I might have been 18 months old. I was, trying to, I was caught trying to put a bridle on the dog. Um, when I was staying <laughs> at my grandparents' farm, it was just—I don't—it it was just instant the affinity that I had with horses. But I was never able to have one of my own, and I asked all the time. And I substituted, like when I was a kid, I would play horse games, and my horse games were a bit more hardcore than most. Um, I remember uh, playing this horse game with Brett Urell um, when I was about five, and um, I allowed Brett to actually be the horse and told him that he had to um, eat grass in this paddock over here while I went inside and organised, you know, cleaned saddles or something like that, which I probably did in real time, like imaginary in real time, probably came out half an hour later. Anyway, Brett Urell was there. I remember with uh, green all around his face. He was too scared and I'd said with such authority that he needed to eat grass while I went away and (laughs) did what I needed to do, that he'd... um, yeah, he'd been eating grass. Well, anyway. I, I tell you, if you if you hadn't weren't such an accomplished broadcaster, I think there'd be another profession for you with the whips and the saddles and the bridles. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I, I, you can tell that I'd always wanted to. I asked her for a pony every year for my birthday and for Christmas and all of that. And finally, when I came up here, I did the thing that I always do, which is try to find somebody else's horse to ride. And um, I I did that, and I was happily riding this other person's horse for six months or so. And then she said she wanted to sell him. And I was like, but you can't sell him. I'm having a really good time riding him. She said, why don't you buy him? So who is your horse? What's his name? His name's Doc. His, his racing name was Diamond Reigns. He used to be a, a racehorse. And he raced until he was nine, which is quite late um, for a racehorse. And he's this big, serious, bit of attitude kind of racehorse, right? He's, um, he's bay, which means he's dark brown with a black mane and tail and he just has this mm. look about him like check me out I'm pretty important around here <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so how did you know he was the one for you I mean well, if I, I met a horse that, with an attitude like that I would say take care see you later <laughs> yes. I know I don't think it was entirely sensible I mean it definitely wasn't sensible financially and it wasn't necessarily um sensible uh, as a project either, but he was just, um, he's just basically a really handsome horse. He's really flash and um, maybe I was just swayed by his good looks. So how did your um, partner react? About having this sort of competition in his life? Yes, about having <laughs> yeah, this other man. <laughs> well, he was not that thrilled about it because when we first moved up to Darwin, I, I thought, well, you know, we really should get a dog. My partner loves dogs and I like dogs as well. I thought it could be time to invest in a, a, in this sort of substantial pet. But it was, um, yeah, it wasn't too long until I said, you know, the dog idea, could we perhaps uh, upsize that? <laughs> <laughs> he's on board because he's lovely. Now, but, your, um, yeah. your poor old dad, every year I want a pony. How did dad react to you buying the horse? Well, I didn't realise that he'd always felt incredibly guilty about not being able to give me the pony that I'd always badgered him for when I was a child. And um, when I was talking to him about it, I knew that it was a really stupid thing to do financially. I knew that it would make things more difficult if I had to move for a job again. And I was just talking it through with him. And I'd say, I think it's just, you know, I've wanted a horse for such a long time. I think I'm just going to have to put my money where my mouth is and actually get one. 
and uh, he said, he said, Kate, look, I've always felt terrible that I was never able to buy your horse oh. when you're a child. If you want this horse, can I please buy it for you? <gasps> what a lovely dad. And yeah, mum. That's excellent. Mum, if you're listening, I've always wanted a Porsche 911 since I was a kid. Just putting it out there. <laughs> now, look, Kate, most people would just be happy to have a bit of a run around the paddock. But you have begun a very demanding hobby or, or a sport, and that is dressage. What is dressage? Well, I think it's, I mean, it, you see it in the Olympics, right? It's the boring one where you go, oh, God, the dressage is on. <laughs> Let me find another channel. Except I don't do that. Um, it's this, the whole idea of it is it's a, this really um, precise language that you develop between the rider and the horse um, where you, uh, you're developing these really subtle ways of communicating to the horse what you're asking it, um, what you're asking it to do. And then you, that's your way of actually becoming a team. And um, that's how you end up being able to sit up on top of the horse and be, look like you're almost perfectly still and get the horse to do completely different things underneath you. And even to the point of like moving one leg in a certain way, you know, it's so precise. <laughs> Doc and I have some disagreements about it on occasion <laughs> and our language is uh, not as fluent as it could be, but we're working on it. We're giving it a go and I, what I really want to start this year is um, competing with him. So what does a typical day with Doc involve? Well, for him it involves having a fine time in the paddock. He lives out at this place um, in East Point, which is only 15 minutes from the Darwin CBD and it's this reserve on the coast, you know, the sort of place where early in the morning and then late in the afternoon there's the sort of the um, the ants trail of joggers and walkers winding along the walking tracks. Um, the, the, there's a beautiful sunset almost every afternoon and definitely in the dry season every afternoon. Uh, the sun just sort of sinks down behind the water at the beach uh, at East Point and he just lives in the paddock with about 30 other horses there and he gets breakfast in the morning and he gets dinner at night time and um, I ride him about five times a week and make sure I do all of the feeding and looking after and you know general uh, spoiling duties that I need to do to, to make him feel loved and to um, make sure he can he, he still looks like that amazing serious racehorse. Sorry until you said racehorse I thought you were talking about your partner but I, I, <laughs> I understand why he's a little bit jealous. <laughs> well, it is true that sometimes I get home from work and then I go straight out to the horses and then you sort of get back at eight o'clock and go, so um, anything for dinner? <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, Kate, what would you say to someone who's thinking of buying a horse, you know? They're just thinking maybe, should I, shouldn't I? What advice would you give them before they begin a new relationship with a horse? Well, I would say try and ride somebody else's first. And then you mm. get a bit of an impression of what it's like. And then, um, and then I would say to the person, do you enjoy having spare money? And if you really enjoy having spare money and being able to buy dresses and things, then I would say maybe don't do it <laughs> unless you've got lots of it. Um, I haven't had my hair cut since last August um, <laughs> because I keep thinking, do I really want a haircut or would I like to buy a new saddlecloth? And um, this, this, you know, this is this crazy, you know, 
idealised. This is what I wanted for myself when I was 14 and I, I've completely regressed and um, it's really fun. But you, it needs to be a priority, you know. You can't just do it and do the million other things that you might want to do. It's, it's sort of front and centre. Now... It's Sorry. kind of time, isn't it, as well, though? Like, because they've got to yeah. eat certain things and that. Like, you've, you've got to buy the, all these different foods. They don't eat just grass. Yeah, it costs me about um, $60 a week to feed my horse. Wow, he eats better than I do. Now, tell me, Tim, you've just begun your new show as, as a host of your own radio program on ABC in Alice Springs. How's it going so far? Oh, it's great. Um, you don't get a lot of talk back out here. Um, I have done stuff in Adelaide and, of course, the, you know, the National Division where you are now on, on overnights and people call you, uh, which is a novelty. Um, but when, um, when you're doing stuff in a smaller centre, you don't get that talk back. So, the, you know, getting that interaction is a bit um, more difficult. So it's about going to other sources, Facebook, Twitter and those sorts of places to get people comfortable to kind of talk back to you, SMS, things like that. Uh, so that's been a challenge. Um, but, you know, the good thing about being a smaller centre is you just, you're actually connected to, you actually can news gather that whole thing about, you know, the um, the electronics going down in a newspaper and the editor saying, okay, we'll go out into the street and find stories. And that's literally what happens. We It's quite a small team here. The, there's not a lot of difference between, mm. uh, or divisions between the news department and the the other radio shows and mm. so we just cross-pollinate and it literally comes a lot from stuff that we've seen and done ourselves it's not necessarily you know there's no there's, we're gathering the news well i've really loved cross-pollinating and interacting with both of you thanks so much tim and kate <laughs> i hope we'll chat thank soon. you Sunil. and i hope we'll see you next time we're in the territory you can hear tim on 783 drive in alice springs from 3 p.m every weekday and kate on abc darwin afternoons every weekdays you're on sunday takeaway with me Sunil Badami on ABC Local Radio. Sunday Takeaway with Sunil Badami. That's right, it's me, Sunil Badami, and it's our first ever show. It's Sunday Takeaway on ABC Local Radio. Thanks so much for hanging out with us today. Well, we've been exploring beginnings from moving to a new town to starting a new job, but and beginning a radio show is one thing, but is there any bigger or more profound beginning than life itself? Well, we'll be talking to neonatal paediatrician and author, Dr. Howard Chilton, about the beginning of life, birth, and how he began his lifelong interest in babies. This is Sunday Takeaway on ABC Local Radio with Sunil Badami. That's right, it's me, Sunil Badami, and it's our first ever show. Thanks so much for your company. Now, we've been exploring beginnings, of course, today, from whether it's beginning a new job or beginning a new hobby or beginning a new relationship. But what's it like when your vocation is helping so many new lives to begin. Well, Dr. Howard Chilton is a neonatal paediatrician at the Royal Hospital for Women in Randwick in Sydney's eastern suburbs. He's practised for over 40 years all over the world, from South Africa and Rhodesia to America and the UK. And having been the Director of Newborn Services at the Royal Hospital for Women for over 20 years, he resigned in 1999 to concentrate on parent education and what he calls reassurology. 
Well, he's written a number of books on childbirth, infancy and parenting and his bestseller, Baby on Board, is now in its third edition. In an age where, you know, I guess it feels as if the cult of motherhood has created even more anxiety about birth and early childhood, he's been a warm and comforting source of wisdom and humour for countless nervous new and expecting parents, like my wife and I a few years ago, and it's great to have him join us to talk about this most important beginning. Hi, Howard. It's great to have you here. Hi. Nice to be along. Now, being the son of Indian parents who always wanted me to be a doctor, I have to ask you as the son of English parents, why did you become a neonatal paediatrician? Well, I fell into it. I had no intention of doing paediatrics when I was training. I did like babies when I was a child. I do remember being fascinated by them, but then this was all forgotten in in medical school. Then I uh, moved to South Africa soon after I uh, graduated to look for some sun and surf and get out of the English weather, and I assumed I would become an adult physician. And part of that training is you have to do a term in paediatrics. So I thought, well, I better get it over with now. So I went up to Rhodesia and did a uh, six-month term as a neonatologist, actually a senior house officer. Within three Mm. days of going onto that ward, I realised I was doomed. I mean, it was so... It was just so different. The patients were so lovable. They were so cute and so beautiful. And they had a a completely healthy life ahead of them. Whereas you're an adult physician and you're shoring up old buildings for a few more decades. It's, It's a different feel entirely. And the patients were so attractive. That was the point. <laughs> I mean, I guess that there are very particular difficulties to being a neonatologist, which is, you know, when you're doing a diagnosis, you ask people their questions, you know, questions about what they've been up to, and they may tell you the truth. But how do you find out what's wrong with the baby? Well, it's very much like veterinary medicine. I mean, you're dealing with physical signs. And you've obviously got a history. You've got the mother's history. So, you know, and and I have to say, a lot of the uh, potential illness for babies is due to either prematurity or it's due to the the act of birth and the difficulties encountered during the passage down the womb, uh, from the womb. So uh, the history is important, but it only represents a much smaller part than in adult medicine. So uh, there is a difference between a neonatologist and an obstetrician. Have you ever assisted in any births? Oh, yes. I mean, I'm, a, I'm always there uh, to catch the baby. Uh, I wouldn't like to have to do obstetrics. And, of course, I've assisted in a few caesareans when the, the assistant surgeon hasn't been available. But I leave that to them. Uh, as soon as the baby is, has left the womb, he's mine. So what was your first birth like that you that you saw? Oh, look, I had to do my 20 deliveries when I was a medical student, and it was fascinating. I mean, it is just a fascinating process. And I've, I must have seen, I don't know, 10,000 now, and they're still just as fascinating. I have to say it's a, it's a wonderful process, not only the actual process of seeing this little fetus become a newborn, but also the delight of the parents. So what was your most memorable birth experience? Oh, they're too technical. I mean, my most obviously my most memorable birth experience is when the baby comes out and he's apparently uh, has died. 
and you have to resuscitate him and and give him a circulation and a heartbeat and all those sorts of things and uh, he pulls through and goes to the intensive care unit and ends up with loving parents and going home and that's mm. extremely satisfying and very memorable. Um, now, look, if my children are any indication at all, you know, babies don't seem to arrive at lunchtime. They always come in the middle of the night. Yes, and that's probably for good evolutionary reasons, actually. You don't want to have a baby in the middle of the day where you can be predated and uh, seen from, um, you know, predators going around. So you want to be born in the middle of the night and if possible in the in the uh, uh, actually most babies if there is no light city lights around many babies would prefer to be born in the light of the moon at night mm. and um, that's interesting I mean um, women's bodies are run by the moon uh, mm. without city lights their periods tend to occur at the dark of the moon when there is no moon so uh, of course, city lights destroy all of these these rhythms. So, how has birth changed? Birth changed obviously since the days we were living in caves and worried about predation. How has birth changed since you first started practicing? Well, the process of birth, the process of normal birth, hasn't changed at all. I mean, antenatal care, of course, is much better. Um, and without antenatal care, you can lose. 60 or 100 babies per thousand. I mean, mm. the, all these people who want a totally natural natural birth are risking a great deal if they avoid antenatal care. But with adequate antenatal care, uh, the birth process is, is much the same. Uh, obviously, there's more intervention now. Uh, and I have to say that as a neonatologist... Um, I don't necessarily mind relatively high caesarean section rates. Insofar as in the 20, 30 years ago, I might have to, if I was called to resuscitate a baby, I might have to do really active resuscitation, oh, two or three times a week. It might be perhaps once every six months, nine months now, because if there's any trouble with the fetal heart rates, they go through to a caesarean section and get delivered that way. So they don't... Uh, they're not put under stress in the birth canal. So, there's, there, and, and it is true that there are some uh, hospitals and, and countries and cities that have overdone it and are having caesarean sections way, mm. way higher than is appropriate. And it, that's the too posh to push phenomenon. <laughs> but there is a, a reasonable level of caesarean sections to keep babies safe. Why is birth so difficult? I mean, even up until the 1960s, there was. There were quite high, you know, mortality rates. I, w I was watching with my, my wife, uh, 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 called a midwife, you know, and it yes, struck yes, me yes. at that moment um, where a child wasn't able to latch on that there would have been very high mortality rates for children, you know, before we had formula or we had um, bottles and stuff like that. Well, to say that that may well be a product of our industrialised society, I have to say, in terms of the breastfeeding problems. Um, breastfeeding is a confidence trick, and if you're in a society where breastfeeding just happens, it tends to just happen. And the older women of the tribe will teach the younger women how to latch their babies properly. 
Uh, there's some evidence from some very good studies that show if you don't interfere with the babies too much following delivery, you just lie them on their mum and let them find their way to the nipple, that they can attach quite effectively pretty well by themselves and there's a good chance that they will breastfeed successfully rather than plucked away from their mum, bathed and cleaned and put in a gown and weighed and measured and then given back to mum after a couple of hours or whatever. This can interfere with the normal process of getting a baby to latch. But uh, it's a complex matter and um, certainly formula has been very useful in those babies who are unwell or those mothers who are unwell or the mothers who just cannot or or are unable to uh, breastfeed. However, there's no doubt that breastfeeding is absolutely optimal for babies and should go on for you know, as long as possible. This is Sunday Takeaway on ABC Local Radio. And I'm Sunil Badami. Thanks so much for your company. We've been talking beginnings on this, our first ever show, and we're talking to neonatologist and author Dr Howard Chilton about that most amazing beginning, birth and early childhood. Well, Howard, it seems there's so much different advice uh, given to new parents. and It's often very conflicting. I know that before my first child was born... A, very, a pile of very thick books loomed on my bedside table and I felt as if I was falling behind in my cramming for a very big exam. So what's the best bit of advice you'd give to new or expecting parents? I tell them to ignore helpful advice. <laughs> I mean, the, the point is that the, present, the parents at the present moment are falling between two big advice blocks. You've got the old set of advices and that is your baby is is kind of selfish he needs to be brought under control and you need to put him into a routine and 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 you're the boss not him and these uh these advices were given are up until the 50s and 60s and 70s and then starting at that time the attachment parenting people came in now the attachment parenting pediatricians were often actually Psych, uh, psychiatrists, psycho, psychoanalysts or psychologists and they had learned that adult psychoneuroses often started in infancy and they thought there's something about being an infant that is really important for people's good mental state of health and they realised that actually evolution has been looking after uh, little mammals for about 60 million years and they've been doing it by attaching closely to the baby and looking after them by close contact. Mm. And they started to look at that and see the patterns of parenting that ends up with nice, healthy children who are, who are loving and love their parents and grow up to mm. healthy people who can love each other. And they found that it had a heck of a lot to do with the baby's first year. By the end of the baby's first year, they pretty well wired up their brain for whether or not they have the capacity to love and whether or not they have the capacity to love themselves, that, which is an, in, an, an important and intrinsic part of being able to love others. And it's all to do with how your first year goes in terms of attachment how much your mother loves you, how much attention she in particular gives you, but doesn't have to be mother if she's not available or, or she's busy. As long as there's other carers who love the baby and are invested in the baby, the baby gets the message and wires up his brain. Well, 
I mean, you've given so much support and advice to new parents, but as the son of doctors, I know how long the hours are. Mm. So how did you, you know, balance the demands of your profession with your role as a father? I think that's a a terrible question you're asking me because I didn't. (laughs) I mean, I spend a heck of a lot of time working. I spend a lot of time at the hospital and... uh, Uh, You know, the joke in the family was when my daughter said, who's that man? Uh, It was time for me to spend a little more time with her. And I had a couple of girls. But luckily, I married a woman who was just wonderful with my babies. And she made up for the fact that I wasn't there. And when I was there, I think I was there as much as I could be. But my mind... Fathers don't realise this. You can't look after a child and read the paper. Mm. You can't be on the computer and give your uh, infant attention. Children know when you're not there, and yeah. being, being there is the critical part of it. And I, I did my best, but I don't think I was very good. Well, you've played such an important role in so many mothers' li- new mothers' lives. Mm. What was your relationship with your own mum like? Oh... Look, she was a lovely woman, and, and the, the beautiful thing about it, my early life was, was idyllic. I mean, she breastfed me till I, was, till I had a set of teeth, uh, and uh, when I gave her a good bite, I think it stopped, but I was certainly into my second year by then. And uh, she, was, she was a very contact-oriented woman. Um, and during the important part of my uh, childhood, which was my early part... Uh, then later on, um, when I, I was sent away to boarding school at about the age of 11, but by that time, you've either got it or you haven't. And I had the idea that, that I knew what love was by the age of 11 and boarding school couldn't destroy it. So, um, I mean, you've actually begun a new life in so many places, whether it's boarding school or South Africa, America. Yeah. What inspired your wanderlust? Oh, I just... When you're born in Yorkshire, it's a good idea to try and get out <laughs> and see the world. Not, not that, Lord, I love visiting Yorkshire now, but I wouldn't want to live there any longer. And I just wanted to see what the rest of the world was like. I was also looking for the perfect woman, and I found her actually in Australia, but it took me uh, a, a good deal of searching. That's your wife, Tamara. That is, yeah. The mother of your children. Exactly. I was going to say, it's, it, you could almost say the same thing about being in a birth canal. It's a good idea to get out. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Howard, for being with us at the birth of Sunday Takeaway. Now, you can find out more about Howard and his work, including his blog, podcasts and interviews, by clicking on his name on our website. Just Google Sunday Takeaway and ABC Local Radio, and it'll come up. His new as yet unchristened book is due out in July and I'm sure like his publisher he's hoping it's not going to be overdue This is Tanil Badari on ABC Local Radio It's your Sunday takeaway with me Sunil on ABC Local Radio Look it's been really great hanging out with you and I I can't wait to catch up with you next week. We'll have another engaging theme, some more interesting guests and even more great stories to share. But in the meantime, you can download this and every program to follow from our website as a podcast uh, at abc.net.au forward slash local forward slash Sunday Takeaway. Or just Google it, Sunday Takeaway at ABC Local Radio. 
Friend Sunday Takeaway on Facebook or follow us on Twitter and let us know what themes or stories or places or people you'd like us to explore and share with you. I'd love to hear from you. Our, our Twitter handle is at ABC Takeaway. 